All right, let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. This is the last of the fruit of the Spirit. And although this one is not listed as a fruit of the Spirit, um, it is an outgrowth of really of self-control. Because in order to control ourselves, it is necessary for us to, to exercise control over that which wants to uncontrol us, and that is sin. And uh, throughout church history, and, and even throughout scripture, it talks about we have to put sin to death. And that's where we get the word mortification. Okay, We have to mortify sin. We have to kill it in our lives. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read from Galatians chapter 5. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes, open our hearts, that our minds would be ready to hear and our hearts ready to receive your word today, that it would fill us, Lord, that we would understand the lives that you call us to live, lives of holiness, lives of self-control, where sin is done away with, where sin is put aside, it is run away from, and holiness is pursued. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now, I'm going to start in um, verse 19, and we'll read to the end, because 19 gives us an idea of some of the sins that we are supposed to put to death. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just as an aside there, it is those who habitually, purposely practice those things and pursue them, even though they know what is right. Um, If you make a habit and a a life of those types of things, your salvation is in great peril. But... Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified is in the past tense. Crucified, done. If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, uh, the church has almost always talked this way, and, and uh, both in church history, in scripture, and really not until about mortification of sin, putting to death sin. Now, really not until maybe the last 60 years or so that, that some within the church talk more about um, uh, not not em- embracing sin, but how about ignoring the sin of the world so that we can have a better means of communication with the things of the world and with the people who are outside the church that we might be able to better take the gospel to them. I mean, some portions of the church uh, have even gone so far as, as almost ignoring sin in, in their teaching, in their study, and preaching only on grace and, and God's love, and, and uh, God loves you no matter what, Okay. Uh, well, we just read some things that God is not too excited about there in the deeds of the flesh, okay? He's not very excited at all about that. 
Now, we must kill sin in our lives. It does not mean if I find you acting sinful, I should come and kill you. Okay? That's, that's, a, that's a false religion that does that, that sees, well, there's Dan, and he's acting sinful, so off with his head. Now, you might want to lop off Dan's head, but you talk to him about that later, okay? The Bible is concerned with my own personal sin and my own sinful actions. Sinful actions that come from society as a whole and, and, and different people, there are means to address that, okay, within society and structures. We have civil government, etc. Things like, if you sneak into my house in the middle of night and, and, and rob me, Okay, there are means in which you will be caught, hopefully convicted and sent to prison. That, of course, if, if I don't catch you in my house in the middle of the night, okay, you may never get to the police. Okay? Uh-huh. Uh, then there are those who hold the doctrine that says you can reach a state in this life of perfection, of perfection, where you no longer sin. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, uh, where, where you never sinned, where you never thought about it, where you never pursued it, that doctrine is called Christian perfectionism. And it's also known by several other names, several other names, okay? Such as perfect love, heart purity, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, Christian holiness, the second blessing, the second work of grace, baptism of fire, the Keswick movement, uh, the victorious Christian life, and entire sanctification. Those are some names that are associated with this Christian perfectionism. Now, if you look at pure Methodist doctrine, the Methodists in their pure doctrine would believe that you can become perfect in this world. Okay? Now, Wesley wrote that, but Wesley said he never attained it, and I doubt that you could find a, a Methodist who would claim that, but that's within their doctrine. It's also in the doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventists. They believe that you can achieve perfect holiness, and simply not sin in this world. Christian perfectionism, let me uh, explain it to you here, holds that the heart of the regenerate, that's the one who's born again, may attain a state of holiness in which believers are made free from original sin or depravity, and where there is a total love for God and others achieved by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That would be Christian perfectionism. Now, I once overheard a conversation uh, with a woman who claimed the, the second blessing of perfectionism, but she qualified her claim a bit. Okay? She said that she was fully sanctified into holiness so that she never committed willful sins. Now just think about that for a minute. I never commit a willful sin. Now if an action happens apart from the will, it's not a moral action. My heart beats on its own, right? It's a... It's a uh, Involunt, thank you. An involuntary muscle. Okay, it beats. I don't have to think. I, you know, man, if we had to think about keeping our heart going all the time, that, that would be tough. No, that, that doesn't happen. It, it beats on its own. Well, what in the world is an unwillful sin? Let's think about that. What's an unwillful sin? All sin involves the exercise of the will. If it happens apart from the will, it's not a moral action. My heart beating on its own is not a moral action. Okay. The corrupt inclination of the will is the very essence of sin. Okay? There's no sin without the willing of sin. The woman really excused her own sin by denying that she had willed to commit it. Well, that's not... It, it, what, what Flip Wilson said what? 
The devil made me do it. It's not my fault. Okay, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to think that way. It was an unwillful sin. So she felt that she had reached perfection because she never willfully sinned. A bunch of hooey, okay? A bunch of hooey. Scripture abounds with explicit testimonies against this doctrine of sinless perfectionism, that you can reach perfection in this world. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, James, Proverbs, John, it just is very clear, just a couple to mention a couple. Not until we stand before the Lord and we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, then sin will be gone. Until then, sin remains in our lives and we will struggle with it. The believer lives in a tension in this world. Martin Luther uh, described the tension in this, in this way. The justified person is simul justice et peccator. Sorry, my Latin is not up to speed. At the same time, just and a sinner. At the same time, just and a sinner. That, that describes who we are. We are in Christ. I have been justified by the work of, the, of Christ, but I am still what? I'm still a sinner. Okay, I'm going to wrestle with that my entire life until I stand before the Lord. R.C. Sproul tells us this. He says, if you are justified, then you will be a changed person. At regeneration, the Holy Spirit comes into us and does something to us, the fruit of which is faith, and the outgrowth of faith is good works. It is holy living. The idea that we can be justified and fail to show any fruits of sanctification is completely contrary to Scripture. Okay, You can't say that, well, I'm justified, but I, I don't, it doesn't show in my life. Are you really justified? Because the concept here is that if you are justified, the Holy Spirit, you've come to Christ, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within you. You are a new creation in Christ. Now your desire, however imperfect it is, is to do the things of Christ. To say that you don't have to produce anything in your life uh, and, and still go to heaven, it's just a false doctrine. A false doctrine. Perfection is the goal of sanctification, but our conversion doesn't get us there. This is still Sproul say, uh, talking. We are still sinners. In the person who is justified, sanctification begins necessarily, inevitably, and immediately. Now, I remember when I became a Christian, and I didn't immediately jump up and go do great works. I immediately did, I mean, it took time for me to understand that, but the process was already at work within me because the Spirit was present in my life at that instant. There's an actual change in the person. The moment a soul is regenerated, a changed life begins. The sinner now possesses the righteousness of Christ, though he remains a sinner. Is there anybody in the room not a sinner? Good, good, because you'd been a liar and then you'd been a sinner. Okay, if you put your hand up. It is a lifelong process that we undergo in the work of sanctification. Okay, and part of the work of sanctification is exercising self-control. Part of self-control is killing sin in our lives. Now, uh, because we're alive today and, and we, we typically think everything that happens to us today is the most important, and it's, it's the coolest thing, uh, it's, it's the best or whatever... We might think that, that we have a lot more opportunity and it's easier to sin today than it was, let's say, back in the 1500s or the 1600s when the Westminster Divines were writing the Westminster Confession. Sin is sin. It's, it's, it's easy to sin at any time. But with 
social media and electronic world, there are more avenues and more opportunities, we'll say. Now, I'm going to read from a study that was done in 2013 about the emotions that are most likely to be expressed on social media. Okay, let's take a little poll. If you don't want to confess, that's okay. Uh, how many of you uh, are, uh, have a Facebook account? Okay, pretty much. How many of you um, check the internet for and read news at least once a day, on average? Okay. Um, gee, how many of you get the newspaper? Wow, okay. That, that comes in like paper still, doesn't it? Real paper? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, this was a study that was done, and, and the article written off of the study, a 700-word Facebook post accounting for all sides of a contentious issue is unlikely to garner as many readers as a one-sentence quip blaring heightened feelings. Okay, think about that. Would you rather just read a one-sentence statement and go, man, yeah, that's right, or would you rather read a reasoned and comprehensive discussion about an issue? Well, usually electronically, if, if you're like most people, it's hard to get through the first paragraph of a story. If the first paragraph doesn't catch your attention, you can click on to the next thing, okay? Well, the same thing is true here. Who really wants to read a long tome up that covers all, issue, all sides of an issue when you can read one statement and get really jazzed off that one statement and move on to the next thing? That's the process that most people are using today. And see that, and so the emotion that comes out of that is not this warm, fuzzy emotion. The study says it's a motion of anger. It's, it's, that's what comes out of that. Okay? Now, let's, let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Paul makes a change here as he gets to, to Romans chapter 8, and he begins to deal with the doctrine of sanctification. He doesn't say sanctification here, but you can see as you read through Romans, there is a, a movement that begins in that direction here. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. Okay? If you're going to live by the flesh, you're going to die. If you're going to live by the Spirit, then you have to put to death the deeds of the body. And if you put to death the deeds of the body, if you mortify sin, then you can live. And he's not saying that you're just going to, going to have life. He says, Jesus came to say, I, had, I came to give you life, what? That you have life and more abundant. Okay, I'm, I'm a little tongue-tied today. Too much coffee, apparently. My mouth gets ahead of me. It's here, D, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's here for the first time that, that Paul begins to speak explicitly about sanctification. How we are told to practice the Christian life. Mortification involves the cultivation of new habits of godliness combined with the elimination of the old habits of sinfulness. The cultivation of godliness, the elimination of sinfulness. 
It's a constant warfare that takes place within the believer. John Owen, the great, the great Puritan who writes extensively, I mean, he writes on and on. He's got an entire book on sanctification. When I say Owen has an entire book on sanctification, I mean, it's like four or 500 pages about this topic. So let me boil down a couple things to you. He said, he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases to live, he does but half his work. Okay, I understand. Let me translate that to you from 1600 into this time. If, you're, if I'm called to come and kill you and I quit beating you before you're dead, then I've only done half my work. Paul said we are to do what with our sin? Put it to death. Kill it. Kill it until it is dead. Okay? Now, if you leave it alive, what happens? It's going gonna, it's gonna to come back. Okay? It's going to come back with a vengeance. Remember when um, they cast out the demon of the guy and they left him empty? And who came along? Seven more. Okay? If you don't kill sin in your life, it's going to fester and it's going to come back. That's what he is saying. If you do only half the job, it's going to come back and bite you. Okay? Let me continue on. Mortification, the killing of sin, kills sin's force, but it doesn't change sin's nature. It may be destroyed, but it can't be cured in this world. Okay? Understand, we will always wrestle with sin. We will always wrestle with sin. But if it is not overcome, then it will destroy our soul. Anyone who understands, who has seen someone who is, who is ad- addicted to sin, okay, whose life simply appears to be devoted to that, who can't get away from that, that you can see how easily and, and, and the process of destruction that it takes in their lives. Sin is never quiet, whether it's conquering or conquered. The old man, that's the sinful nature, with its faculties and properties, is wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. This, says the apostle, must be killed. It must be put to death. It must have its power, life, vigor, and strength taken away by what? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of Randy. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And we are to put to death these things by the power of the Spirit. Now, Scripture gives us quite a list of things, uh, of ways to do this. Now, let me give you a couple things that are not ways to kill sin in your life. Legalism does not kill sin in our life. Okay? A bunch of do's and don'ts that are only external does not kill sin in our life. Um, Separating yourself completely from society. Um, denying yourself certain things. Um, you know, any, any external means does not get rid of sin in our life. Denying ourselves certain things. Well, I deny myself sinful things. Yes, but just to deny yourself to say, I'm denying myself so I'm conquering the flesh. I'm denying myself the chocolate cake that's in my office. And I'm conquering sin. That, that, that's just... That's just for me to say, so you go, boy, Randy's really holy, man. You know, he's going without chocolate cake. No, that's, that's not the issue. The instrument of self-control and mortification is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work within us. All the means of mortification are simply the commands of Scripture and the exercise of obedience. That's what it comes down to. 
This is what scripture says. Am I going to do it? Oh, isn't that what it always comes down to? You go, well, that's what it says I have to do. Okay. Let me give you a short list of what scripture says. A short list of things. Peter says, abstain from, from fleshly lusts. In other words, stop lusting. Flee immorality. What could be more direct than that? Okay, flee from it. You want to put to death lust in your heart and stop entertaining them. Stop going somewhere where you can find them. Stop looking at things that, that cultivate the lust in your hearts. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I do not know of a single scripture that tells me to take my sin, the particular things that get me down to God in prayer and ask him to deliver me from it and then trust that he will. Now, we are to go to God with those things, but then just to say, Lord, take this from me and then for me to do nothing about it? Go to Ephesians chapter 4. This is, that's, that's not the way that it works. You go to God, and you are reminded of His power. You have the Holy Spirit present in your life, and you say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. How can I get rid of it? And He's going to look at you, so to speak. He's going to look at you, and He's going to say, well, why don't you read Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Verse 28, chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who steal what? Just pray that the Lord will take away that desire for him to steal? No, steal no more. Oh, oh, what? Let him who steals steal no longer. You know it's wrong. Don't go and pursue it. In fact, replace it with something what? But rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good. This is to the believer. Okay, this, this is to the believer. So you find Randy stealing stuff and you come to me and say, Oh, Rand, we're going to pray for you that the Lord would take away your desire to steal. No, the command of scripture is don't do that because you know it's wrong. Go out and work. Go out and invest yourself into something that will take your attention away from your sinfulness and yourself. Okay, that's so you abstain from fleshly lust, abstain from stealing, abstain from sin. I know it sounds like an oversimplification. That's what the word says. That's what the word says. Does the Lord give us the power to do so? The answer is yes, He does. Do we have the will to do so? Sometimes. Sometimes we don't. Secondly, fix your heart on Christ. Whatever is the object of your heart, you will worship. If it's stuff, you'll worship stuff. If it's another person, you'll worship another person. If it's yourself, you will worship yourself. You will become like the object you worship. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. From Psalm 135. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. What do you worship? Fix your heart on Christ. Pursue Christ. You'll become more and more Christ-like. The third one, meditate on God's Word. Uh, that's, I want to say it's a no-brainer. Fill your mind with the things of, of God's Word. Okay? 
The next one, exercise self-control. That's what we're dealing with. We touched about it last week, and, and all you have to do is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul talks about how he, he buffets his body, how he runs the race with, with particularness and purpose. Okay, so, so all of these things go into self-control. If your athletes are willing to do all that just to win a prize, it was a basically a celery wreath that they put on their heads. What about believers who gain eternal life, whose goal is eternal life in this? Are we willing to buffet our bodies and keep them under control? Next, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, you are, the Spirit comes and lives within you at the moment of conversion. And again, John Owen, he does no he, does, he doth not so work our mortification in us as not to keep it still an act of our obedience. Okay? The Lord is helping us to kill sin in our lives, but we have to be obedient to kill sin in our lives. It is the Lord's work. It is Randy's work. He gives me every opportunity and every power to do it. Will I do it? And that's, that's just what it comes down to. I've said it again. Will I do it? The Holy Ghost works in us and upon us as we are fit to be wrought in and upon. That is so as to preserve our own liberty and free obedience. He doesn't make me a puppet in sanctification. Now, sometimes I wish he would. Sometimes I wish he would just come in and do everything for me. And, and because it's too hard for me to overcome this sin. And, and he said, but I've given you the ability. I'm not taking your free will in the exercise of it here. I've given you the ability to do what is right. Okay, let's find an example of what we're talking about this in, in Scripture. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Lord sends Samuel to anoint Saul and then gives Saul a direct order from God. Okay, a direct order from God. Um, usually those are pretty straightforward, pretty much you need to do whatever God says for you to do. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming out of Egypt. And that's from Deuteronomy and Numbers. You can look all those associate passages up at another time. But what happens, the people were leaving Egypt, they were on the way out, and the Amalekites came and they would attack the stragglers. They would attack the tail end of this long train of Hebrews who were coming out of Israel, out of Egypt at the Exodus. And so the Lord remembered this and remembered their, the, the terrible things that they did. And he says, you're, you're in big trouble. I'm going to kill you for this. Now go and strike Amalek, verse 3, and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There's, there's no question about what he's called to do here. Destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Kill every Amalekite. Now, we think in our, in, in our uh, minds today, well, that's, how could God do that? That's brutal. Okay? 
this is punishment for the Amalekites attacking the covenant and chosen people of God. And he said, I'm going to destroy you, and here is the instrument of that destruction. And he makes it clear to Saul, destroy all of them. Don't leave anything alive. Kill their people, kill their children, kill their animals. Everything. So then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For he showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the, among the Amalekites. Verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. What's wrong? Agag is alive. And that's, that's in contradiction to what the Lord said very clearly. Now, he, he said he what, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. The Amalekites are bad. Let's let's put this in words we can understand. The Amalekites are bad. They attacked mercilessly the covenant people of God. God says, I'm going to destroy you, Saul. Go and kill them all. Don't leave anything alive. And Saul says, I got the king alive and all the good stuff. Hmm. Do you think God is pleased? Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's bad. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. No, he did not. He did not. Now, in his mind, he thought this was a good thing. Come on, because everybody else captures the king, so we can parade the king around, do bad things to him, so everybody knows that that we're the victor, and we kept the good stuff, because, I mean, who doesn't want the good stuff? But Samuel, verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord our God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And you think Saul's going, yeah, what a great guy. And that's what he told you. So go ahead and speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission in which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of 
of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And he goes on and on and on and, until we get to verse 32. He, 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 Saul just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. This is what the Lord says to do. Well, I did some of it. Isn't that enough? Look at verse 32. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully because he thinks, well, they've spared me, so I'm, I'm going to, I got my get out of jail free ticket. I'm on the way out. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Now, kill sin until it's dead. If you stop, Owen said what? If you stop beating someone before they're dead, you've only done half the work. Okay, if you've been sent to destroy something, destroy it. Kill it till it's dead. Saul was sent to destroy the king and all the Amalekites, and he only did halfway because he didn't carry it out all the way. So Samuel says, let, or Samuel says, let me show you what the Lord commanded you to do to this king. And he took out a sword and he hacked him to death. Where? Before the Lord, it says. This is what it comes down to. Sin is serious business. I mean, you can't let sin fester in your life. You have to kill it. Because if you don't destroy it, it will come back and destroy you. Sin already defeated at the cross has to be dealt with ruthlessly in our own lives. We have to hack it to pieces or it will revive and it will come and plunder us. It will come back and get us. See, what happened, there were some Amalekites that were still alive. And we see later on in the Old Testament, they come back and they attack David and take his family hostage. Why? Because Saul did not kill the sin. This is what we have to do. This is what we're empowered to do. The sin of our own lives. It has to be done away with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this is an ongoing battle that each believer must face. Boy, it would be so great just if we, if we prayed and you took all desire of sin away from us, if you took every opportunity to sin away from us, if we could just go on and live our lives and everything was, was great and our eyes were never taken from your word and our eyes were t never taken from your face, that our focus was there and we understood completely the joy and the peace and, and just the, the grace and all that comes with the things of Christ. Well, that'll happen one day when we are in your presence as we stand before the throne of grace, washed in the blood of Christ completely. But until then, we are here in this world, and we will struggle with sin. And Lord, we know your call to get rid of it in our lives. We know the areas of our own lives where we are weak in it. We know you are faithful when we come to you to confess our sin and to turn away from it. You are faithful to forgive. And Lord, 
Every one of us who, who has experienced that understands the sweetness of your forgiveness. When we have perhaps thought that we have done something so bad that we could never be forgiven of, or, or that we feel trapped in some pattern in our life of sin that we can't get out of, yet you are faithful to forgive. But it is also the exercise of our own wills to remove ourselves from those things. Heavenly Father, come upon us. Remind us both of our obligation and of your power in overcoming sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 108, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Let's stand as we sing Rock of Ages 108. Perhaps you have struggled for years with something that you just can't seem to get rid of it in your life. It just, it just clings to you. you. You run away and then it just shows up again and again and, and, and you've not been able to kill that sin in your life. I invite you to come ask Bo to come down and, and if anyone comes down and wants to pray about that, wants to talk to an elder, Bo will be here down in front. Understand the Lord gives us the power and the authority to do that, to kill the sin in our life, but it is a process and it can be very difficult. Some of those sins are really pesky and they don't want to let us go. Heavenly Father, send us out, filled with the things of your Holy Spirit, assured of the work of Christ, but yet of the process of sanctification, we are in the midst of that. We must exercise the self-control. We must get rid of the sin in our lives. We must fix our eyes upon Christ, upon his glory, upon his mercy, 
and upon his holiness. Send us out with our eyes fixed on that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.